Hello and welcome to the Inside Social Work podcast, where we take a peek behind the scenes into different fields of social work, engage and inspire practitioners, translate research into practice and encourage lifelong learning. I'm your host, Marie Vakakis. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's podcast episode. Hi, welcome to episode 30. This is incredible. I'm I'm so grateful for all the listeners who've supported me along this journey to make it to 30 episodes. Couldn't have imagined this when I first started. So thank you to everybody for all the guests, uh, for the listeners and everybody who's been part of the journey to get the Inside Social Work podcast to 30 episodes. Today's episode, I chat with Blake Johns. Blake is an accredited mental health social worker who works in private practice and in men's behavior change programs. He shares with listeners some of his journey into social work and some of the challenges working in the men's behavior change space, as well as some of the outcomes and some of the positive things that he's been able to see. We talk about the importance of compassion as well as self-compassion and the importance of supervision and self-care and Blake shares some of the the ways that he's been able to grow as a social worker and what he wish he learned when he was first starting. I hope you enjoy my interview with Blake Johns. Hello, welcome to the podcast, Blake Johns. How are you going? Yeah, good, thanks. How are you? I'm good. How are you holding up in the current COVID environment? Yeah, not too bad. Like there was a bit of a shaky start um, at the beginning of it all, but... I feel like it's somewhat settled to a certain degree now, but um, now that school's going back and child protection reports are coming in, um, yeah, kind of bracing ourselves. Mm. And we we're, were kind of chatting um, before the recording about how difficult it is in this space of, we, we kind of dream that we work ourselves out of a job. And so mm. it's a hard place saying it's really busy because that means not ideal things are happening out there for us to be that busy. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah, like I mentioned before, like a lot of gratitude and things like that for um, doing such amazing work, supportive work for so many people um, and being grateful to, to be in a job, but at the same time, the reasons why aren't so great. Yeah, that feels, that feels tricky. Mm. Absolutely. And gratitude is definitely something that we try and practice a little bit. <laughs> so t- tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do and where you're at currently. Sure. So I'm a, an accredited mental health social worker. Um, I would describe my practice as male, positive, pro-feminist and child-centred and intersectional. Um, I'm doing work in men's behaviour change programs for perpetrators of domestic violence and I'm also working in um, private practice. Yeah. Um, in which state are you in? Um, I'm in New South Wales. I'm actually on the cusp, um, New South Wales, Queensland. So down in little, uh, little Coolangatta. Yeah, so we're right on the border there. But Um, The Men's Behaviour Change Program, that's um, a New South Wales Department of Justice accredited program. So I work in New South Wales um, for that job. And the private practice spans across New South Wales and Queensland. So the Tweed, Northern Rivers and also Gold Coast. Fantastic. Such such a, um, so interesting to see all those different departments work together, Mm. but also be so separate. I'm sure there's 
a whole layer of systemic um, challenges <laughs> in that space. Yeah, definitely. There's um, working on the border definitely has its quirks um, from daylight savings to other cross-border issues, um, different jurisdictions, um, and yeah, just different support networks. It can, yeah, it can be a little bit bumpy sometimes for sure. Yeah, yeah. Could you share with the listeners a little bit about what are men's behaviour change programs? Yeah, sure. So men's behaviour change programs are a very specific accredited program um, in Australia and, and around the world, particularly Canada, US and the UK, uh, specifically targeting um, men's use of violence, particularly towards women. <clears throat> Um, there's other sorts of men's behaviour change programs around um, that are a little bit different. Um, and without getting, in, getting into it too much, I guess um, some of those other behaviour change programs um, don't quite embody principles of coercive control, um, triangulation impacts on um, women and children. Yeah. There's so, there's so much in that. I'm like, oh, there's so yeah. many juicy bits that mm. I could pull out. Um, oh. I imagine it's a very difficult space and you started off your intro by kind of sharing your personal philosophy and the frameworks you work mm. in. Yeah. What are some of the maybe responses or misconceptions about men's behaviour change? So I imagine if you went out for dinner mm. with strangers, you don't just going to say, hi, I work for <laughs> men's behaviour change. Like, yeah. I remember <laughs> my, uh, my placement in child protection was a bit like that, where we never said where we worked. Like we, yeah. no, we're, we're here from a telecommunications company. Like there are <laughs> yeah. a lot of misconceptions by the public. So yeah. Mm. Without yeah. kind of maybe giving too much away, what are some of those things that you think you can understand why the public think that, but it's not really mm. true. Okay. Um, I guess a lot of the misconceptions, I guess there's always a lot of curiosity, but um, it's quite uh, emotionally charged, um, I guess, field of practice where a lot of people have um, either perceptions or experiences or, um, um, yeah, I guess ideas around uh, what domestic violence is, what men's behavior changes. Um, a lot of people, um, I guess, talk about it as a mental health issue. A lot of people will demonise men. Um, a lot of people will victim blame women and victim survivors. Um, and often children are completely <laughs> left out of the picture. It's, it's often, often a really adversarial context, a, a debate um, between men and women, between a really binary construct of genders. And it's, it's, it's really political because... Um, um, I guess the, the work that we do is, um, I guess the history of men's behaviour change programs, uh, accredited men's behaviour change programs are gender-based, um, gender-based violence, which stems from gender inequality. These days we're a lot more intersectional, but um, because of that political background um, and I guess some misunderstandings of what feminism and pro-feminism is, um, we get a lot of resistance and um, 
maybe well-intentional inquiries, but sort of, I guess, missing the mark in terms of understanding um, power and oppression and violence, um, especially when um, people might come from a, a stance of, not a stance, I guess, everybody's um, sitting within a, a culture and a society um, that's essentially um, patriarchal, white supremacist. Um, and yeah, I guess being indoctrinated within that system and that structure, um, we're not always supported to um, hold a line of inquiry that might be a bit more open to what men's behaviour change actually is. Felt like that was long-winded. Did that sort of answer your question? Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, there would be so many varying views and perspectives on this. It's just nice to kind of unpack it a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think maybe like a, a firm sort of maybe pragmatic view of men's behaviour change might be really helpful. Um, so our program runs for 36 weeks, um, broken up into four um, nine-week modules. And each of those modules um, looks at exploring different types um, of, I guess, violence and men's behaviour change. So, um, like I mentioned, the, the program's intersectional and pro-feminist. So what, what it's really looking at is the different stratifications of power, privilege and disadvantage, how they operate not only in the life of the man, but also that of his family victim survivors, but also the, um, the social and cultural prism um, which that operates within. So, like I mentioned before, uh, the programs had been historically pro-feminist space, which was based in, I guess, the second wave feminist movement. Um, and, and that was really, really helpful, not to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but men's use of violence, violence supporting masculinities, um, gender inequality, how that influences um, those causal factors or um, really strong indicators of men's use in violence it is really, really important. I guess the intersectional feminist lens um, brings more about, well, how does patriarchy also um, disadvantage men? Um, how does that contribute to men's shame? which sits alongside sexism and misogyny, which also sits alongside racism, heteronormativity, homophobia, um, and other forms of, of power over. So now we've kind of got this really nuanced understanding of, or, or de developing a more nuanced understanding of um, what domestic violence is and, and what the implications are in men's behaviour change. And I guess that 36 week program with all those different topics can give us a bit of an opportunity to start tucking into that with guys. Mm. That's so interesting. Um, and, and I'll pop in the show notes later, any sort of articles or things that you have in reference sure. to some of those groups. Mm. Being a facilitator, I mean, do you call yourself a facilitator? What's yeah. your role? In yeah, that's good enough. <laughs> what are some of the challenges maybe for you personally or working in that system that you face delivering mm. those groups? Yeah, um, definitely by far the, the most difficult for me is balancing a sense of compassion and humanity with accountability and res responsibility for the guys. So understanding that um, these guys are using violence 
um, alongside other things like collusion and pressure management in group. Um, and I guess holding a productive space where they can actually, um, I guess, hold inquiry into, into the types of violence they're using and, and where some of those attitudes, beliefs, core values and those behaviours might have came from. There's definitely, um, I guess, a choice point in whether or not to use abusive behaviours, but abusive behaviours don't happen on their own. And um, although there's different types and yeah, different types of, of privilege um, in society, which some people have and some people don't. Um, at the same time, uh, we're all active participants um, uh, within intersectionality and we're all affected by um, different elements of um, power structures. Yeah. I think that was so, so beautifully said around trying to balance um, those multiple things. And I think a lot of us, especially if you work with, maybe mandated clients or you're mm. even doing work, systemic work, you will mm. come across people who you're trying to balance that compassion and empathy while holding them accountable. Cause if you, if you can't show empathy, you can't, you can't get mm. changed. Their walls up. Mm. People feel shamed or blamed. Mm. Um, it, it makes it impossible to get them on side to change that behavior. Mm, yeah, 100%. I mean, in the, the Masters of Social Work, we, um, we learn a bit about motivational interviewing, which was probably a helpful pathway. That in itself is um, quite dangerous to use in terms of an anti-inclusive perspective, but it, there's elements of that that are probably helpful in explaining um, a bit more about, I guess, having compassion for, for some of these guys working with resistance, particularly um, that I guess um, old models of behavior change that meet re resistance with resistance are, are really not helpful and actually not only unhelpful to the man, but more unsafe for, for women and children. Um, these days we, um, we use, there's a few different approaches. One, one guy, um, Alan Jenkins, he's from the Dulwich Center down in, um, Adelaide, which is where narrative therapy and, and all that jazz comes from. And he talks about invitational approaches. So invitations um, for guys taking responsibility. And he, he's actually not pro-feminist, though he's got what I consider a bit of an intersectional lens. In some ways, it, it's more about um, a human rights um, perspective, I guess. Um, but he talks a lot about um, colonisation and, and not to take away from um, white supremacy and the, um, the language around that, but he talks of colonisation in terms of colonising the guys. And if we're asking men to stop using power over, then who are we to take a higher moral superiority um, to reproduce those power relations by using power over ourselves? So what we're doing is um, social justice work. We're not just doing men's behaviour change work, we're doing social justice work. And we're actually demonstrating um, how that's done um, through our facilitation. That sounds like a very difficult kind of balance to get. I'm sure like mm -hmm. there's so many different things to consider there. What a difficult space mm -hmm. to sit in sometimes. Yeah, it's quite tricky. There's, there's other challenges as well, like um, 
I think in terms of intersexual feminism, um, I'm a white, cishet, able-bodied dude talking about oppression and privilege with, with these guys. Um, and I've got a shit ton of privilege. So it, it kind of feels a bit weird in some ways, um, uh, talking and advocating um, on behalf of, um, of people that have, I guess, silenced voices. Um, there's a part of me that feels, um, I guess, privilege is invisible to those who have it. So I've got like a lot of blind spots, obviously. Though at the same time, um, my woman co-facilitator can um, put across a certain idea and it will be met with resistance, but I'll wield my power, wield my privilege to put the point across. So there's a need for it. But there's always this sort of like <laughs> trickiness of like this is, doesn't feel right, kind of feels like a necessary use of power. Um, but I think we can get caught up in the, the idea that power is a bad thing, but I think it can be used for good as well. Yeah. And I imagine that's a, that's a difficult line to walk on, whether it's always power or if it's, I see you like me, so maybe you get it. So there's mm-hmm. a bit of a camaraderie or kind of perception yeah. of camaraderie maybe, mm. yeah. which is still part of the privilege, I guess. It's, <laughs> um, there's, there's a whole lot of other problems with, mm. you know, hiring people that look like you and speak like you and that kind yeah. of... Um, those subtle ways that that kind of permeates mm. through, but yeah. I'm sure we could talk about the challenges for. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. In the time that you've been running this, I mean, what are some of the positive outcomes you've seen, whether it's for the, the men, the children, the families that um, you work with mm. in this space? Um, yeah. Talking to positive outcomes is pretty tricky because I really support um, I guess people working with men to shift away from that um, professional assessment of, of what's actually going on, particularly when they don't work with the women um, uh, and victim survivors, not necessarily always women, I should add. Um, I, I guess I see outcomes in group in terms of their level of understanding increasing of what domestic family violence is. And I think anecdotally um, and from hearing from women's um, and children's advocates that some types of violence do decrease and the severity might decrease. Um, (laughs) It's it's really, really hard to talk to. I, I guess in a nutshell, um, what really makes a men's behaviour change program different from anger management and psychology and counselling is that we've got triangulation. So triangulation means that we, um, we have the men's presentation group and then we have um, family advocate workers that work with um, partners, ex-partners, victims, survivors. Um, and we also work within an integrated response with police and health Um, child safety, corrections, and um, I guess we triangulate the the men's presentation. And then even within that, there's all sorts of barriers and obstacles to, um, I guess, victims and survivors um, telling us what's going on in the home. 
Um, so victim blaming is still a thing, um, socially, culturally, institutionally, structurally, and even with professionals. Um, say uh, like our mental health um, team is, is pretty good here, but we've got a lot of individual counsellors and psychologists, for example, that might assess a presentation, a woman, a victim survivor's meditation, uh, presentation, sorry, um, as, as a mental health issue. Whereas if we actually peel back the layers, we, we might actually see it's, it's um, complex trauma and that they're colluding with, with, with the man. Um, so yeah, I, I guess that one's a little bit tricky to, to talk to. Um, I see guys, um, mental health improving, understanding shame, um, their own shame, their own trauma, understanding um, uh, gender inequality, it's linked to gender-based violence. Um, I see them developing a sense of curiosity. I see them in group um, uh, checking their resistance more, checking their privilege more. Um, but in terms of what actually changes at home, what changes with their behaviours, um, only the only victim survivors truly know what's going on there. And sometimes they're able to share their stories and sometimes they're not liberated or maybe empowered enough to be actually able to share what's going on. Yeah. It's, that's such a, um, it's such a beautiful answer because I, I think we do forget that if we're working with just one party, we're taking what they say is the change and we need to mm. be able to know what's happening mm. on the ground with other people. Mm. But even, f I mean, just some of those things that you mentioned around men understanding their own shame and their own maybe trauma history, awareness of their mental health. I mean, there's still, there's still good outcomes, even if it's mm. not, um, even if you're unable to see past mm. that at home. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's, there's a book that came out recently, a Jess Hill book, and she was um, talking about um, one of the main parts of or contributing factors to men using violence is, is it shame-based. Um, so we definitely talk to that as well as um, uh, the violence supporting masculinities, um, which is gender inequality and, um, and more pro-feminist-based. Um, the sociological sort of side of things is a bit trickier to, to get hold of because that's sort of hitting the roots of defensiveness and resistance with some of these guys um, in a lot of ways, in some ways not so much. But at least even talking to the shame stuff, it's it, some of the guys that are a bit more resistive, I guess that's sometimes an entry point for a lot of guys. Yeah. Do you ever, I mean, a part of me is picturing, and maybe this is my, the early influences on like career choices you, you know you see Hollywood movies or like a little video and you just you imagine that you're going to say this one golden nugget piece of advice and then people <laughs> will have this revelation and the the whole group will band together like do you ever have sometimes moments where you think I just I wish this amazing thing I said would just land that way mm. But then in other ways, people will come back to you and say, I really thought about that thing you said. And you're like, oh, what thing? And they'll say it to you like, I didn't know what. <laughs> okay, that's great. Like what people take away from some mm. of those moments yeah. is very different to the grand moment that you think, yeah, this is the nugget. And if I can just get the light bulb to go off, 
this is it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, there's, um, it's interesting. And it, I think it operates on um, additional levels um, in men's behaviour change because I guess one of the trickiest parts about intake to a men's behaviour change program is is this person going to come into the program and um, try to learn more strategies to use within his um, uh, entrapment web of coercive control to, to further abuse um, another person. Um, and so there's that what you're saying and also that um, whether it's intentionally and I think there's an element of, of unconscious in terms of um, victim stance in self guys will pick up bits and pieces, which is totally, <laughs> um, totally different to, to the message that you're trying to get across. So um, I've had full sessions of talking to, to male privilege and entitlement. So um, privilege in terms of um, uh, what we're born into and, and entitlement, what we take from it. And felt like I've had these really um, healthy, robust, um, fruitful conversations with guys and then we hear from partner support that he's gone home and told his I guess reverse that onto his partner in, in, in some way it's just yeah um, it's a tricky dilemma <laughs> yeah how do you I mean I don't even know how to <laughs> where to take that because that's it's such a difficult process and there's so many different things that you're trying to juggle from intake right through the 36 week program. Mm -hmm. If we, I mean, if we take it a, a step back, how do you personally sit with that? Like what, what do you need for yourself, whether it's self care or support or how do you balance all of those things week after week? in an ongoing capacity without burning out? Mm. Um, regular supervision is definitely the most important thing. Um, that's, I guess, uh, um, yeah, formal support, I guess you might call it. Um, having a really robust um, self-care routine as well. I do a lot of surfing, Vipassana, um, yeah, different bits and pieces. Um, lots of hangouts with friends. Um, I guess a lot of critical reflection on um, what it is that I'm doing. Um, holding a strong pro-feminist lens balanced with um, that intersectional uh, male positive and child-centered stuff. So some of the stuff I might do is, I guess, listening to um, men talk about abuse and using minimizations, justifications, denial, smoke screens can, can kind of feel really heavy by the end of the week. So maybe sort of um, one week it might be reflected on some more of the male positive stuff in terms of um, there's that old saying, um, how do you treat others? Um, there are no others. And sort of reflecting on, okay, we're all in this together. It's different for everybody, but um, we're all marinating in, in, this, um, in this big intersectional um, prism of, um, I guess, that shapes um, who we are as people in a lot of different ways. And then other weeks, um, I might be feeling my pro-feminist lens might be um, 
I guess, not as close as, as what it usually is. And that might kind of because I get I fall into a, um, a man's story of trauma. I work with a lot of guys that um, have served overseas, sexual abuse history, um, PTSD. Um, I want to say serve overseas like as veterans. Um, and, and I guess it's, yeah, it's such a difficult balance between that um, sense of compassion for other and accountability um, which is, I guess, compassion for other people and can't really do that without self-compassion. Um, so, yeah, um, I guess my weeks are pretty full with prioritising myself and my relationships. Yeah. Those, yeah, those, those few things come up quite a lot for people and I think for those listening who are new to the field, it's really important. Um, sometimes, you know, we, we talk about maybe you can miss one or two supervisions or one or two of your self-care strategies but long term you can't do the work you love for as long mm. as you want if you mm. kind of crumble yeah yeah well i mean a lot of us like you said we get into social work to hopefully put ourselves out of a job and yeah we get out of uni we hit go and forget that it's a marathon um, not a sprint and self-sustainability and, and the work's so important. Like you, you hear of burns out workers um, and, and yeah, it's a real risk. Yeah. I've become close to not burning out, but I've definitely felt um, I was heading in that direction at, at one stage and yeah, regular supervision is yeah. One of the most important things for me for sure. Apart from supervision, and maybe you reflect on this a bit more um, as you get through your career, what are other things that you found keep you in the job longer? Like you mentioned that you work in private practice mm -hmm. as well as for another organisation. Like yeah. maybe that's something people overlook. They think the one job has to be full-time mm. for for years and years and years in one place mm. and not realise that maybe sometimes having two part-time jobs or working across different roles or in different mm -hmm. capacities that can also contribute to a reduction in burnout or feeling like you're a bit more, mm -hmm. um, you know, you're using different skills or different parts of your, your brain and different things you enjoy. <laughs> if that makes sense, I don't know how you see it, but if mm -hmm. you have anything to share in that space. Big time. Definitely. So I was, I've had a pretty hectic career, I guess you'd call it. It was, um, post-tsunami crisis and um, community development stuff, then worked in statutory child protection, then went to working on sexual, sexual offenders um, in custody, doing behaviour change to this job, which has been like a five-year stretch. And um, got to a point last year, I'm like, I need a change. I, I don't know what I'm going to change. And then um, my boss floated... Uh, the idea of, of private practice with me. He's also a mental health social worker. And um, he's like, why don't you just go get like a different scope and um, get some diversity. And it's been one of the best things I've ever done. So um, I'm working with, not that it's any easier, but it's less taxing, just some nice white middle-class anxiety. And um, doing a lot of stuff across um, juvenile justice, disabilities, um, some other types of mental health. Um, it's really cool because I'm using 
um, I guess some of the framework that I, I developed from, from men's behavior change, but I'm also using really different creative um, types of um, advocacy and, um, and support um, framework. So um, I guess in, I mean, this doesn't suit everyone in, in private practice, far from it, but um, my private practice, um, I politicize somatic psychotherapies in, in working with people. So I do a lot of work in drug and alcohol rehabs, particularly, um, but also um, some stuff in disabilities where that, that works really, really well. Um, particularly like um, uh, victims and survivors of trauma where um, previous models privilege the um, uh, psychological and biological model of complex trauma, whereas um, when we're working with people, what we notice is that they um, talk about um, the relational challenges and um, the somatic experiencing of, of trauma. So it's pretty cool to sort of have like some really great feedback in working with the individual and within systems and uh, with families. And um, I get quite a few people saying I've never worked with a psychologist, therapist that, that works quite this way. It's, it just feels a lot more decentered. It's not about the professionals, it's about the individual. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just really refreshing to do something other than, yeah, I guess, backhands intervention programs. Yeah, yeah. When you said that about it being more person-centred, it reminded me there's an episode a few weeks ago, um, which at the time we are recording this, you wouldn't have listened to, um, where our guest was talking about working in child protection and when you work in those space you inherit the public perception of that organization so mm -hmm. and i feel that that can weigh quite heavily on individuals even if you weren't born when those services started or you mm -hmm. don't agree with some of those original philosophies you mm -hmm. have to in you inherit the reputation or the mm -hmm. the trauma or the influence that that mandatory mm -hmm. service for example, has. Mm. And I think, and that's just what came to mind when you were talking about therapy work being so person-centred. I found that as well, that you can, it's nice to be in a system where, I mean, I'm still constrained by NDIS and Medicare and <laughs> other stuff, <laughs> but you can work very much to what the person needs. Do we need more of this work? Do we, and you can be quite, it's just you and I in the room, how do we make this work? That's just where my mind yeah. went. I don't know how you feel about inheriting mm. that kind of reputation of an organisation and then being able to practice on your own. How mm. those two fit? Yeah, yeah. It's um, I guess I'm really lucky because the Men's Behaviour Change Program, uh, the organisation there I work for, is is really quite progressive. They're really onto their stuff, and I'm still learning tremendous amounts from those guys. Um, uh, I, I guess I hear people's experiences of working in an organisation and, and there's constraints and things like that. I, I feel um, like my approach to the work has really been supported organisationally. I guess my private practice um, has sort of just extended into some things that I'm really interested in, like the um, somatic work and reading up on the power threat meaning framework. It's, it's like an alternative to the DSM that's non-pathologizing. So um, 
yeah, it's it's been cool. It's um, the person-centered stuff is um, it's definitely a part of my work. Um, I forget where I was going with that. It's okay. I do that all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'll get you to um, you know, the book, the Jess Hill book you mentioned, and a few other yeah. things. We'll pop links to those yeah, um, cool. in the show notes. Yeah. If any anyone listening out there wants to get into maybe into this space and working with um, family violence or men's behaviour change, what are some things that you might, um, what's some advice you might give them about maybe where to start or what kind of training to do or jobs to look for? Mm. Well, um, I'm actually finishing up work in a few weeks. I'm going to be driving around Australia my van so I'm going to have a lot of time so if anyone wants to swing me a message um, uh, through my website Blake John's Counselling they're more than, than welcome to do so otherwise I definitely suggest um, looking at resources like ANROS um, other peak bodies for men's behaviour change like No to Violence um, there's some great books like Jess Hill which is great Great from a gender-based and psychology sense, but it is an intersectional. Um, in terms of getting into jobs, I guess it depends where they, they're at in their career. It's definitely harder for, for, for guys getting into a domestic violence setting um, because a lot of the, um, the work leading up to it is, I guess, um, those type of roles are preference to different genders. Um, yeah, I guess it's a tricky question. It depends where you're at in your career. But definitely, um, if you haven't got any experience starting with support worker positions, getting into a bit of mental health and seeing um, how you can get more involved in domestic violence settings. Or if you can't get into domestic violence, how can you start to adopt um, domestic violence understandings of coercive control, intersexual feminism um, into, into your current work? That's great. And I'll put, I'll put a link to your website and those other resources um, in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Um, just kind of a kind of parting, I guess we're at the end of our time together, a parting mm-hmm. question before I, you know, pick your brain about where you're traveling in your van. Mm-hmm. What's, um, what's one of the things that you wish you knew when you first became a social worker? The importance of self-care straight away. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember doing these, um, critical self-reflections in the masters and just kind of breezing through them like, yeah, I just surf every day sort of thing. (laughs) Or like um, if things get too much, I just buzz off and go away in the van for the weekend. And um, I'd really, really recommend sitting down and having a good think of what fills your cup, what stops you from filling your cup, where's the tap at, (laughs) all that sort of stuff. Um, Yeah, I, I guess I've found um the importance of self-care the hard way um particularly with uh, difficult jobs but um yeah i just can't emphasize enough how important it is to really um relate to your self-care ideas strategy plan really feel into it no contingencies know who's around you um yeah (laughs) i can definitely empathize with that i think my my problem earlier on was saying yes to too many things and then mm-hmm. feeling swamped and overwhelmed and mm-hmm. maybe social workers aren't the best at 
asking other people for for help or support so just feeling like i've got to contain this because i said yes and i can't let anybody down yeah definitely that's that's really hard well it's been it's been so lovely chatting with you um and i'm sure people can reach out to you on on your website and um, we can put a link to any of your other kind of contact details um in the show notes yeah cool (laughs) thanks for being (laughs) a guest yeah thanks so much for chatting really appreciate it for listening to today's podcast be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode's resources and don't forget to click subscribe and review us wherever it is you get your podcasts